In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we're revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. He went on to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. I ran to the car, what happened, what happened? And when I turn around, then I can see. All I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die. You know, don't let him die, don't let him die. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't go back there. I've been there, but I haven't been there. There's nothing there that I want to remember, really. Why King? Why the Prince of Peace? That was going through my mind. This man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. The Voices of King, a podcast of 13 voices, 13 people who bore witness to the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as told to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ryan Horn. America met Bernice King on April 9, 1968. The youngest of Coretta and Martin Luther King Jr.'s four children, Bernice had just turned five years old two weeks earlier. But there she was, in a packed Ebenezer Baptist church, dressed in a white dress and draped across her mother's knees. Her mother wore a black dress and mourning veil. Her father was in a casket fewer than five feet away. Bernice King's eyes seemed distant, not noticing or caring that photographer Moneta Sleek Jr. was capturing her most vulnerable moment. In a 2008 interview with Bernice, she remembers the emotions of that day. AJC reporter Ernie Suggs conducted the interview with Bernice. Bernice King's kind of rise as a kind of major figure in Atlanta has kind of come over the last 10 years. When I first moved here in 97, 98, Martin and Dexter were kind of the faces of the family. You know, they were, you know, Dexter ran the King estate. Martin Luther King had the name. You know, Dexter looked like him. And Bernice was kind of like the young sister who was kind of, you know, doing her thing. But this hasn't been until like over the last 10 years, kind of like after this interview, that she has kind of emerged as this national figure. She's an amazing speaker. She's an amazing, um, you know, theologian. Um, you know, she now runs the King Center. So, you know, over the last few years, you know, when you think about the King family, when you think about the King legacy, she's the one who's carrying it out. That was not necessarily the case in 1997 um, because, you know, she was the young sister. I think Yolanda was still alive then. Um, so she was kind of the young kind of, you know, the, the baby. But now she's kind of like she's kind of risen as kind of, you know, the queen of the King family. <laughs> Bernice A. King, I'm the youngest daughter and child of Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. And uh, actually, um, just before my father passed or was assassinated on April 4th, uh, I had celebrated my fifth birthday. It was actually seven days uh, prior to he died on Thursday, April 4th, 1968. Well, Thursday, March 28th, 1968, I had my last... Uh, birthday with him being on this earth and we did get an opportunity not on that particular day because he was in um, Memphis leading a march uh, for the sanitation workers 
uh, that unfortunately was infiltrated by some people and there was violence and everything and that's when he was planning to do another one uh, on the Monday after his assassination. And so uh, on March 29th, he returned home and we got a chance to celebrate uh, my birthday. So I get, did get to celebrate my last birthday in his lifetime um, with him. Um, I, you know, the first three, three and a half years of my, uh, my life on this earth, uh, my relationship with my father was uh, a little uh, distant in, in the fact that the year that I was born, 1963, was the same year that the nation zeroed in on what was happening in the South through the whole Birmingham demonstrations with the water hoses and the billy clubs and the dogs and the young people that were being treated so horrendously and unjustly. And um, um, with that happening, it called for a greater level of responsibility and travel on my father's uh, behalf and so he was away from home more often 63 on than he was prior to my birth and so it was kind of like trying to figure out who he was <laughs> you know this man that enters in periodically um, but through you know the time that he he spent trying to get me to warm up to him uh, probably going into my fourth year I did begin to warm up to him and uh, don't have a lot of memories. Most of the stuff I've been told, like jumping off of the refrigerator into his arms, I was, I was the envy of the household because I was the last born. And uh, he did it with Yolanda. I'm not sure if he did it with uh, Martin and, and Dexter. Uh, I think he did. But here I come along and I take everybody's spot. <laughs> so I get to uh, jump off of the refrigerator into his arms. And it frightened my mom because, you know, it's like, you know, is, is he going to really catch him? Uh, but I guess by the time I came along, he had enough practice. Uh, so uh, those kind of things took place. But I remember especially, and I hold it as near and dear to my heart, when he would come off the road, he and I played a kissing game. And uh, I would run up into his arms when he would come into the house. And I, he would say, all righty, we're going to play the kissing game today. And he said, tell me where is, uh, at that time, Martin was Marty, Marty spot. And then he would say, where is Dexter's? And he'd go through everybody's name, uh, including mine. And my spot happened to be right on, on the forehead. And that was my bonding and my identification with him. And I thought it was so important because without that, I literally would have no you know, conscious memories of my father. Um, and you know, I remembered that as if it were yesterday. Um, and uh, I remember when he passed. Uh, two or three or four years afterwards, I, it just seemed like such a small period of time, like literally that was taking place yesterday. Uh, and so that was really, uh, uh, you know, my relationship. I remember him as just a, a fun-loving uh, father. Uh, I do remember a few times uh, the dinner table. I mean, we spent a lot of time we don't do these things today as families, and we need to, but we spend a lot of time a lot of time around the dining room table. And uh, my father sat at the end of the table, and I kind of sat right in between he and my mom. And I remember so often there were these long, I think they're called uh, onions, they're green onions. Uh, they have a bulb on the end and then a stem. And he would, before he even said the grace, he would kind of just pick it up and start chewing on it like it was celery. <laughs> so I, you know, I have that impression in, in my mind, uh, in memory in my mind about uh, my father, but that's it. Those are the only uh, uh, memories I have of him living. The day that he was killed on, uh, assassinated on April the 4th, um, um, again, uh, I don't I don't remember much. Uh, when my mother uh, came home that that night, I was already in the bed because uh, it was very late at night. It's, you know, when they got the news, finally it was around seven something, um, and they had already put me to bed. Uh, but I, what I do remember is that uh, uh, the day that they they brought his body back to Atlanta, we met uh, our mother at the airport and went up on the plane. And I remember saying to my mother, 
Uh, well, first she said, I asked her, where's, where's, my, where's my daddy? Because I was looking for him. And uh, she said, he's in his casket in the back of the plane, asleep. Well, you know, first of all, that was a word I probably, I had never heard, casket. So I probably in my little mind was trying to figure out what is casket. And uh, then I said, um, mommy, daddy's back. I hear daddy back there breathing. And I guess for a kid it's like a snore maybe. And she said, no, he's not, you know, that's, 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 that's not what you hear, that's the plane. That's what she said. Okay, that was her response. Um, I think she was trying to prepare me because after we left, we would be going to the, uh, the funeral. And she didn't want me to be in shock when I'm asking, where's my daddy? And the next thing, I just see him lying there in this casket. So she tried to lay out this whole notion of laying down stiff sleep in a casket. Um, and, uh, you know, when we, when we got to the funeral home, um, I, um, I, I don't know what exactly happened, but um, apparently it was very perplexing at age five, trying to put all this together. Asleep, this box that he's in, you know, a little five-year-old at that time. The kids are very smart today. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't quite understand. So I had all these different questions. Um, and I remember one in particular, uh, not on that particular day, which probably would have been somewhere around April 5th when the body was brought back from, from Memphis. So this probably happened somewhere around the 6th. And I asked her, how was he gonna eat? <laughs> because again, remember the, the onion, the green onion, I remember. So how, how is daddy gonna eat? And I don't remember her response. Uh, no, she said, God's gonna take care of that. And um, God's gonna take care of that. Now, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And so she looked at me because I had this perplexed look like God's gonna take care of me. And uh, she just grabbed me and said, uh, Bonnie, mommy loves you. And that was it. Um, so we get to, to April the 9th, which is the actual funeral. Now remember, no, I didn't tell you this. My mother told me before we got to the funeral home that my father wouldn't be able to speak to me. That's what he said. When we were on the, when we were on the airplane, he said he's, he's asleep. Um, and then when we get to the funeral home, you know, your daddy, you won't, you won't be able uh, to speak to him. So we get to the funeral on April the 9th, and I'm hearing... I mean, in my mind, it's okay, he's asleep in his casket. I see him in his casket. He doesn't speak to me. She said he's not going to be able to, to speak to you. And we get to the funeral on April the 9th. It's very hot in there, extremely hot, all these, you know, cameras and lights. Um, I remember that so well, surrounded by all these cameras and lights, and just so hot. And I, I know I was going in and out of sleep on her lap. and. Uh, at the time in the funeral when they inserted the message that he delivered on February 4th, uh, 1968 at Ebenezer uh, entitled Trump Major Instinct, the latter part of that message is where he, it almost like he delivered his own funeral. He said, if you're around when I have to meet my day, tell him I don't want a long funeral. And we remember, uh, many people remember that, that portion of the Drum Major Instincts uh, sermon because he talked about, say that I was a Drum Major of Peace and, and Righteousness and, and all these other shallow things like the awards that he received will not matter. Well, I'm asleep, you know, and this voice, you know, booms through the, through the uh, speakers and it's my dad. So I'm, you know, looking for my dad because I was told he couldn't speak. So the child is like, wait a minute, that's my dad's voice. And I'm looking for him. Of course, I don't find him. You know, I don't see him 
in the form, you know, outside of that casket. Um, and my mother said I even had this look as if he was coming up out of the casket, you know, like almost a terrified type of look. Um, so I do, I remember that distinctly that day. Um, and then, of course, you know, we, after the, the, the funeral was over, um, we, we left out of the church and we, we uh, prepared to march to, to um, um, Morehouse. And uh, I can't remember who carried me on their shoulders, whether it was um, Uncle A.D. or Uncle Andy, um, who, who I was on their shoulders. I think it was Uncle Andy. Um, but, and then I, I don't know if we walked the whole way. And this is weird, you know, kids have crazy thoughts. Uh, I remember being at Morehouse, sitting on the uh, front row, and I was looking up at the stage where the casket was sitting, and I, you know, I'm just like a kid, and it seemed like it was like cricket or something. <laughs> I don't know, I was supposed to be grieving or something, but I'm just paying attention to the fact that here's this cricket casket, and I'm like, it's not angle, something's wrong. Um, so I was having those kind of little thoughts in my own little world. Uh, and that was just, that was my experience uh, during that time and, and um, you know, trying to make sense of it all in, in, in years past. I remember probably when I was about age, maybe five, perhaps six, I was in the kitchen. And there's a picture of my father with two uh, school-aged children, elementary school-aged children and he has his arms around him, and I can't remember if this particular picture is out of Selma or Mississippi. Um, it's a very uh, famous picture if people see it. And I remember looking up at the picture in the kitchen, and I, I remember like today, like I'm having this out-of-body out of experience of sorts, and seeing myself look up at this picture, and the thought in my mind was, he left me for them, those little girls. Um, weird. Uh, there were times when um, different guys, like we had a lot of photographers around our house throughout the movement and even afterwards a few photographers would be around and there was this one gentleman, I, I can't remember if it was Flip Schulke or, or someone uh, of the sort and I had to go, I had a ballet performance and he was going to be going with us. And just prior to that time, you know, when different gentlemen would come around, I would ask my mother, can, can, can he be my daddy? You know, it didn't matter the color at that time. It was like, I didn't understand all of that. Um, and uh, I didn't understand that you have this biological father in my situation that, you know, birthed me and was there. Uh, I'm just like, okay, daddies are something you just, I guess you, you pick, you know, out of a store or if something goes away, you, you just go and pick another one or something. Uh, and so this particular time, uh, I had this ballet performance, and he was going with it, and I said, Mommy, but if he goes with us, do you think people, will, you think they'll think he's my daddy? <laughs> so I spent so many years kind of like looking for, you know, my daddy until, of course, my teen years when I came into a full understanding of who he was. And, you know, really what he represented uh, to, to not just us as a family, but to the nation and world as a, as a whole. I was going to ask you, um, when, you, you, you kind of started that, but when did you realize or fully understand what had happened? And when did you fully understand who your father was mm -hmm. in terms of what he did? You know, I spent uh, my childhood, my mother, uh, spent a lot of time talking to us about our father and not hating the person who killed our father. Um, talked a lot about forgiving um, the person. Um, and an interesting thing, she didn't just talk about it, she lived this herself. She was just such an extraordinary vessel of, of love, unconditional love and forgiveness. Um, and. Uh, she, you know, she talked about the sacrifices and she would always remind us, she loved to invoke your father, your father. It's almost like here's a single mother trying to raise her, the kids that she's left with, without this male presence. And 
using his teachings to invoke his presence in the house, you know, uh, to kind of assist her. So, you know, she would talk about things like uh, uh, the, the, the abbreviated version in the Bible about, you know, the greatest of you is a servant of you all, um, the importance of serving humanity and, and serving other people. And, you know, that's what your father did. Um, and your father would always say, somebody has cut off the chain of violence. You would say that a lot of times, because you know, kids kids get into little fights and stuff. They're little kid fights. They're not, nowadays they're a little more serious. Uh, but back then they weren't that, that serious. Uh, and so she would tell us, somebody has you know, cut off the chain of violence, but she would invoke his name. Your dad, you know, would say. Um, and so, you know, through all of that time, you hear all of these teachings and, and the, the inquisitive nature is to know more. So we had a copy, a film copy of Montgomery to Memphis. And uh, in our basement, I would get the projector and I would you know, reel it and, and I would watch the film. I mean, there were several times, even when friends were, were over, I would watch the film. I saw it you know, any number of times. I, mean, I can't count, it could be eight, nine times. But there was this one particular time when I was uh, elected president of the youth group at Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, my, the church home that I was, that I grew up in, that my father co-pastored with my grandfather. Um, and I had suggested, because it was during the, the, the Black History Month time period, I had suggested that as a part of the retreat, we watch the film. Uh, and we did it. And for some weird reason out of nowhere, because I remember I'd seen it eight, nine, ten, ten times. This never happened. At the funeral scene, I just, tears started just coming down my face. And I just, I got up out of my seat, you know, I walked out the, the front door of the cabin that we were in on our retreat, walked up behind the, the, the cabin and went up into the woods and I was just boohooing. It was about two hours. Um, and uh, my cousin Angela was on that retreat with me. And uh, they took me back in the cabin about maybe 25 minutes or so after I was in the woods. There was a way to get back in on the floor that was kind of like an upstairs floor from the, the bottom, the, the main floor that we were all gathered on. And, uh, or gathered in. And they took me into a bedroom and I just, you know, lied across the bed and uh, crying two hours, why? And it was like I was asking a why to God, to, um, to daddy, um, you know, like, why did you leave me? I would go in between, why did you leave me? Or, you know, why did you take him? And just, just why, you know, just why, why, why for two hours? And that was that point that I just, um, I think after crying, I, I began to entertain some very bitter and angry feelings uh, about it, that this pain was so intense. Um, and in my little mind, I made up, I made the decision that I was through with church and, and God. Now that's just in my mind, because I'm still in my mother's house. Um, but it was that experience that really put him in a, 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 an entire context for me. Because when you watch that, that documentary, Montgomery to Memphis, and you see the succession of events, and you see his involvement throughout, and what you know he was trying to do by, by elevating, not just a people, but a nation, to a, to a what I call as a godly consciousness. Um, and you see the sacrifices that he and so many others made. Um, and then to be cut down like that at a young age, and and you you're you're at 16. By this time, I'm I'm looking at you know certain things in our our society and feeling like, well, who's really not not just the work my mother was doing, but I was thinking in a more unified context, who's really carrying that work? I mean, what why isn't our community more banded together? and continuing uh, this work? Why, is, why are we so scattered? Um, 
uh, so that anger, you know, at black people at that time because I felt like they weren't carrying forth the work and I was angry at white people in my mind, you know, because you generalize a lot of times when you're in pain. Uh, so at that time it was like the white people were responsible for his death and I was angry at God because I felt like you're God, you're supposed to be able to stop things like this. Um, and then I had a little anger at my mom because I felt, not the truth, but it was just a feeling that, you know, she, she had to, to leave and go carry on the work, you know, and certainly at this age, I understand and really thank God she did do that. Um, and then I was probably angry at me, but not fully sure why I was angry at me. Um, and, and so it all happened at, at age 16 where it came into this realization and it sent me on a lot of different journeys of trying to resolve the hurt and the pain and the confusion and, and, and the anger. Um, and uh, getting through it to a place where I could finally engage uh, my father's readings and listen to his messages. Because I, I mean, when I started theology school um, at age uh, 22, uh, so this was 16, and this is six years later, um, I had not really read, studied, other than what my mother invoked, or very little, my father. Because I just, the, 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 the pain, the anger, and also I didn't want to get lost. At that time, it was like, I didn't want to get lost in all of that. And what would it mean for me to get lost in that? And here he lost his life. So all of that, trying to work through that at a young age. Were you 22 when you lost the bitterness, when you went to theology school? When, how old were you when you lost the bitterness? And how did you lose it? You know what? That's an ongoing journey. I won't say I'm bitter today. Uh, I, I just say I'm 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 in a better place uh, with the pain because the pain is always present. It's a daily journey of trying to rise rise above it because there are different experiences that occur in life um, and and different moments that will try to unearth whatever that that is. Uh, to remind you, you know, there are times when, you know, I'm like, I wish I had him here now, uh, to, especially in ministry. You know, I need his counsel. So it's not a bitterness, but it's a, it's a pain and it's, it's another kind of anger. It's not a destructive uh, kind of anger. Uh, so I won't say I've, I've lost it, but the kind that could have been very harmful and, and very damaging, uh, it probably wasn't until probably somewhere around the early to mid-90s. And, and it was because of the ministry that I was involved in time at, at Greater Rising Star Baptist Church here in Atlanta, and a lot of the teachings of, of the pastor there, and he became kind of uh, another kind of embodiment of this whole unconditional love that my mother exuded, my, my father exuded, and my mother then exuded for me as a child, and then reinforced by a man of God, like my father was a man of God. So I almost needed a, a, a relationship with a pastor who had that and, and was, was intent on teaching that to other people to go through a kind of healing process and look at things a little bit differently. So it's, you know, I don't know the exact target date, but I would say somewhere around the early, like, 92 to 95 time period. When we come back, Bernice King talks about how her family coped without Dr. King. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash 
unapologetically ATL. Welcome back to the Voices of King. We continue with the 2008 interview with Dr. Bernice King. Now, a lot of people, especially in Atlanta, think they know your family. And, you know, to a certain extent we do. But talk a little bit about just how this event, your father's his legacy and his death impacted your family, and particularly your mother and how. I mean, because one of the things that we don't really think about is your mother was really a single mother. She raised four kids. Talk about how just how your family has gone through the last 40 years. Well, you know, um, my mother had an incredible ability to understand uh, suffering. And and uh, because of that, um, I never, I never really saw my mother cry, cry. Um, which means in a real sense, we as children modeled her and therefore we didn't really grieve his death because um, we were taught that the life that he lived, the sacrifice that he made was to really to better and to elevate our nation and our world. Uh, and, and in a sense that his death was redemptive um, for, for so many people. And because of that, the grieving was awkward. You know, even at this age, it's like when you start grieving, you get convicted because you feel like it's not the same grief as someone who has a child at 18 or a husband um, who, who may just be out and about and they're in a car accident or um, they're out and they're uh, a random act of violence. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so it's a, it's a little bit different. So through, through these years, I think we've had to, to hold on to a lot of grieving, you know, and have not had the opportunity to, to grieve appropriately because we're so public. And for me, honestly, um, grief tends to, or the moments tend to want to come in public. <laughs> when you're at home by yourself, they don't come. It's like you want to, can I just cry right now? And it won't come. It just happens to come, you know, in this inopportune time. Um, that's, that's one of the things. Um, I think that that 40 year, and, and it, for us, I guess it would be 38, because my mother wasn't here for all 40 of these years was not here now, so. Um, but for us, um, it, 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 I think it, it pulled us closer together as children um, and made us uh, sensitive to her single parenthood. Um, not that we weren't kids and didn't get on her nerves and, you know, a little rebellious. I wasn't supposed to go outside and play and do certain things and I get little whoopings and all that kind of stuff. Um, but she she was able to be mama not be there at every event that we had because of her her incredible calling to carry on his legacy but her teachings were so present because she ensured that as a single parent the people who took care of us babysat us you know had would not undermine the values that she taught us um, so we were well taken care of in terms of that. Um, uh, she never just left us, you know, just out there that way. Um, the extended family became a part of our family even more so. I mean, when dad died, granddaddy, you know, um, became the, the real patriarch. And so the three families, AD's family, cause AD, you know, in 69, uh, drowned. Uh, so they were without a father, our family without a father. Um, and so you had Aunt Christine and Uncle Isaac and, and, and their children. So I spent some time, sometimes at Aunt Christine's house, especially on weekends because of church, so I could go to church um, with them. So we had a lot of extended family support from the church, uh, et cetera. And it never seemed difficult for my mother. It was. I, I just, it's like this, she was able to juggle all of this. You know, she was able to start the King Center in her home, downstairs in the basement, um, 
and yet she was able to be a mother who who set certain parameters and 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 boundaries in the household uh, that were res that were respected. I mean, we ate dinner together. Whenever she was there, we ate. When she wasn't there, it, we ate together dinner. It was at a set time, five thirty. We were at the table eating together and talking about the day. That's a lot of times where she I call it downloaded into us. Um, so come out of the basement up to the dinner table and 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 shared that with her when we moved out of the home. I mean, when she moved out of the home with the the center over to Beckwith Street at ITC in the basement. Um, sometimes she would be able to get there to be with us, and, and other times, even if she wasn't, we were sitting there together uh, as as children. But she she did face, you know, some of the challenges. I mean, um, she teased a lot with me. <laughs> One time she told me the reason she didn't get married again because of me. <laughs> Because I didn't want, and then at one point I was saying, can somebody be my daddy? But then it came, I became possessive of, of my family and my mother in particular. Um, and, and so she would say, well, when people would ask questions, Bunny's the reason, that time I was Bunny, was the reason, you know, I didn't get married again. Um, but she couldn't get married again, really. I mean, he was the only one uh, for her. Um, but it didn't seem like it was a tough time, but then when I look back on it as, as an adult, I know that there were, were moments of extreme loneliness for her. Um, not having somebody to talk to when you're trying to deal with the issues with your children and doing the best you can, trying to lay it out and then having to raise two boys. Because you gotta realize they, they weren't even, I think Martin hadn't even reached teenagehood yet. And that's the most critical time that a father comes into play for a son is right about 9, 10, 11. And here she's left to raise two boys and then the, us two girls. Um, and and it, was, it was tough, but she, she did an, an excellent job. And, uh, you know, as I got older, I could see some things in her eyes, you know. The, the, the fact that I really wish Martin was here to share this moment with, to, uh, to help me through this. Um, perhaps the times when she's been misunderstood by the public to have that covering. Um, but what helped again was the extended family. I remember when she was building the King Center, um, which was probably the most challenging and loneliest time of her life and people were talking about her needing to stay home and raise them children. But when you have a call like she had on her life to make sure that that legacy was institutionalized in the fabric of American life and ultimately in, in the world, um, you have to be true to that call. You have to be obedient to it. Uh, but Granddaddy <laughs> told them, you know, what did he say? He, you know, he used a little cuss word. <laughs> Every preacher, every now and then, we use one word. That's hell for sure. Um, leave her to hell alone, you know. And uh, so he became kind of like that, that male presence to, to kind of cover her in that in that sense, so she could have the, the strength to to, to continue to endure. She would have done it anyway, but it, it just it really um, helped. Uh, so that that was, you know, those experiences, and uh, it was it was. Tough, I think, for all of us in different respects, not having a father, you know, at, at different stages. Um, uh, I, I remember as I, as I continued to get into my teenagehood and, you know, sometimes you, you, you wanted a father to be able to look at those guys like, don't you try it, <laughs> you know, and not having that experience. The closest thing I got to it was, was wonderful. God allowed me to have this experience. My grandfather, uh, we used to, he used to ensure that almost every Sunday uh, the families were together eating somewhere, either Piccadilly's or uh, Morrison's that was like a Piccadilly's at the time or at someone's home from the church who may have cooked that particular Sunday or if the church had dinner. But this one particular time, my boyfriend in high school was with me and we went to uh, Ada Gordon's house to eat. And uh, boy, he sat at the table and grilled him. Son, 
Where you going to college? <laughs> you know, and if you didn't say Morehouse, you were in trouble. Uh -huh. You know, where you go to church, son? I mean, those are two questions. It had to do with education and church. If you answered them right, you were all right with him. But the, he didn't have to answer right, <laughs> so he was in trouble. Um, but so I got a little bit of the experience to be able to hold and cherish. Um, but still, it's not nothing like having that that father here in that role for for me. And it was different for each one of us. I remember, uh, you know, my sister talked about how at age 30, um, she was sitting outside in her car outside the King Center. Um, and because uh, we, again, we never had the opportunity to have private, true private, I call it private public moments. Yeah. Um, like, you know, during the, the April 4th, you know, we always had to kind of share those moments with SCLC. So we never had a moment at the crypt ourselves. Because uh, at the end of the day, yes, he belongs to the world, but he's still for us. I mean, people don't understand. He's still daddy. You know, she's still mommy. Uh, and, and Yolanda says she went over one night around age 30 years. And um, she was sitting out in the car, and she just started boohooing. Um, and, and just crying, she just missed, because daddy was, her, she was the oldest, so they were buddies. She was 12 when he passed, I was assassinated, and, and so they were really tight. And even before she passed, um, in 2006, latter 2006 and 2007, one of the, um, the um, um, ringback tones, uh, that I was a ringtone, I think it is, that I have on my phone is Dance With My Father. It's still on there. And <laughs> a few times when she would call, the song would play because it wasn't, it wasn't the only song, you know, uh, but a few times she would get that song. And on her message, she would be choked up. I mean, it was just an amazing thing. And at that point, she was uh, 51. So, it, you know, it's just, it, 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 it was tough really not having um, both of our, our parents. I mean, once you have them, for any length of time, it's always tough when you lose them, whether it's through death or divorce, and, and then you just have one parent that's constantly present. If you're blessed in a divorce situation to have both in your life, it's a wonderful thing. Who do people say you are most like? Because you, you grew up with your mother, obviously, and you're mm -hmm. young as I'm, I take it you're very close to her, obviously. And you're this wonderful preacher now, mm -hmm. and theologian now. Well, who do people say, and who are you most like? Or are you most like either one of them? Probably in some of my personality, more like my mom, but in my profession, my, like my father. Because um, um, my mother had the image of being very guarded. And I think rightfully so, I mean, in the role that she played. And, and, and I'm guarded, but I was the youngest. So the impact of that assassination impacted me much different than, than Dexter, Yolanda Martin, and me and Dexter perhaps the most because we were so young. So there's this, this guarded that, that sometimes give the impression of standoffish. When, when you really get to know the core of me, I'm, I'm totally the opposite. I mean, there's a very soft, a uh, person inside of that, a very loving and, and compassionate person. But the guard itself came... I'm sorry. Continue. The guard itself came through a lot of pain, you know, and loss at an early age. I mean, just imagine at 5, 6, and 11, I had experienced three traumas. My grandmother shot in church. My uncle uh, taught me how to swim one week before he drowned. Uh, so all of that together as a child, so it caused me to be a little more guarded and reserved. Uh, and, and she, she had that, that, that character uh, about her. Um, uh, I, um, I'm not as organized as she was, but you know, in, in terms of that, I think I would be uh, more like my mother. But now, on the other hand, as I stand in the pulpit, as I become, I'm very contemplative when I have to preach, um, and I become uh, a, a little withdrawn, but I'm very serious at that time. And some preachers, they can talk to you and do all this stuff before they preach. 
and and I don't know how they do it. My father was that way. It's like when it's that time, everything you shut everything out because you're trying to you know really connect and 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 ensure that what you're speaking is for that moment. And so in that respect, you know, I'm like my father, and and I think both of them together, they're their 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 passions and their concerns about the betterment uh, of humanity uh, is is in the heart of all of us, and it, it's 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 even in in the preaching. I mean, I've had to to be a, a social gospel preacher, but also I've had to blend with what people call now the charismatic. I'm an interest. I've had an interesting experience uh, coming from a Baptist church, and I've been through almost every. Uh, religious church experience um, for for a preacher in my tradition, which is is a really unheard of, and especially a female. Now, with your um, forty years after your father's death, what does that mean to you? Does you know? Because we always think about round numbers, and what does forty mean to you in terms of we here we are looking at the fortieth anniversary yeah. of his um, death? Well, I mean, we have to look at the fact that there is a biblical parallel between what took place in the 50s and 60s with my father at the helm of the leadership and Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. Um, he's very, he symbolically has been the Moses um, of our people. And uh, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness um, and 40 was the number of the, uh, where they crossed over um, and they began to move into new territory. Uh, and I think that's where we are now. I mean, uh, there's a generation uh, that is fading and a generation rise. We see it in the, in the election. It's very interesting to watch um, the parallels and just simple things for me, like when I turn on the TV and I watch uh, 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 a Barack rally, um, and, or I watch a Hillary rally, and then I watch a McCain rally. Just, it's totally different. It's like two different worlds, two different generations, and they're converging this year in this election cycle, which is 40 years later. Well, that 40 years rep really represented a generation that had to, to die off because they refused to continue to move forward according to, to God's divine plan. And so, but there were there were some who had the spirit of what that was that were able to, to cross over um, in the Bible. Uh, and I'm watching, I mean, there are people as from my mom of that generation that they're leaving us. It's, it's not that we want them to leave, it's just we're at that change point. I mean, it is, it is a change uh, period of time and that was a change period of time. Um, and uh, uh, there, there are things uh, in this 40th year uh, that we've got to get. Um, and when you think of what has been put uh, verbally in the, in the atmosphere uh, out of Barack's campaign in particular, the, the whole yes we can reminds me of the Joshua generation. Joshua and Caleb were the two who spied with the 12 spies who before the 40 years said, Yes, we're well able to take this land. Um, so here we are, we're in a yes we can generation time. And the key phrase is we. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a continuation. I don't want to call it a, a resurrection of sort, but it's a, it's a continuation with a little hint of resurrection of, of a people's movement that is occurring right now. And, and it's being fueled as it was back then by young people. Um, uh, young people who are ready to see, uh, to, 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 to really take new territories. People who are tired of this, this wilderness and the same old same, or going around in the same circle. Because that's what we were doing. They were going in the same circle, in that same experience, you know, lack of health care, you know, uh, the whole housing crises. Uh, the, 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 the whole, the, the whole uh, inequities uh, uh, in the school system, the, 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 the inequities in the legal system, I mean, just all of that. And we've got to now 
move it and to change that because that has to continue his work. I mean, it is not, it's not finished, I mean. So the inevitable question that people ask is, you know, have we fulfilled your father's dream? That's not really a question to ask. The better question is, is, you know, you know, where are we in terms of moving toward, uh, you know, a fulfilled dream? And uh, certainly we have, we have made a lot of progress. I mean, the fact that we see a presidency now of, of, of an African-American and different races rallying around is an indicator that we've made some, some, some different uh, progress. Um, but we still have to deal with the, the great racial divide, the, the, the serious economic inequities that continue to persist um, in this time. What would your, what would your, I don't, I don't know if your mother knew Barack Obama, I know she knew She Hillary did. Before. She what actually had think, a conversation with him. about what's going on right now with the election? Honestly, my mother uh, had a conversation, met him here in Atlanta. Um, was it John Lewis's birthday? I think so. Okay. And, uh, um, but before meeting him, she heard him speak at the convention in uh, 2004. And if you, if you were with her uh, after that, the way she talked about him, she was very excited about him. She said, I think we have somebody. Because she called, she said, have you, have you, did you, did you hear uh, the, the Senator Obama from Chicago? I said, uh, I don't think I had heard his speech. She said, I said, no. She said, I'm telling you. I think we have somebody. Um, and it was a, whenever she felt that somebody um, represented the spirit of the movement or, um, um, or the spirit of my father, she had this kind of giddy way about her. Uh, and she was like that with, with him. Uh, I don't know if she would have endorsed him because she had a personal philosophy of not endorsing political candidates, but she felt very good about him, and I think uh, she would be very excited about his candidacy and about what's happening, in particular, what's happening with young people. Whether he wins or not, what has happened with young people is the most critical thing. There's this, I call it a revival of such, um, and it's going to take the responsibility of those of us who are a little bit older, I call myself a bridge between the two generations, uh, to ensure that we help to continue the momentum of what's taking place out of that generation. You know, there's this, this, this desire to really rise up and continue to move this nation to be into its greatness or to continue to perpetuate that and to change whatever threatens that. That's what you see now in this, this generation. Um, and that's, that would excite her. They, the young people are participating um, and that they are being responsible, um, that they want to be a part of change, uh, that, um, and that they, they right now are, are, are a part of something that is a, a nonviolent process, more importantly, and that they get it. She would just be so excited about that, mm -hmm. if nothing else. Okay. Now, and I know we, um, our time is short. How, how should people think about April 4th? Um, I, know that, you know, I know we celebrate your father's birthday, but how, how should we think about April 4th, or should we think about April 4th? I, I think we, I think we, it, particularly this year, I think we have to think about April 4th because I think April 4th is a marker uh, for some, some, some change. Some, um, it, it's, it's kind of like the threshold. It's, things have been in the atmosphere, but it's like now, as of April 4th, some things are going to be, I believe, going to be uh, escalated. Um, and because we, whether America wants to acknowledge it or not, uh, Dr. King was a prophet. And uh, you, you, you are held accountable for the prophets that God sends to your nation. Uh, and we're held accountable to uh, 
everything that he spoke that has not been fulfilled, that has not been addressed. Um, and there's, there's uh, resonances of that today. Um, and so April 4th, 40 years later, is, is a time of, of serious uh, re rededication for some people. Uh, for other people, it's a time of getting uh, very serious about uh, being a responsible American. It, you know that we we have to take responsibility now for our nation. We can't you know you know you know you know we we we're we're all a part of this. So, so you know. Um, it's, it's kind of like April 4th to me is like a, a clarion call uh, for everyone to make a commitment um, to moving America, uh, I don't want to say toward the, the promised land, but, but moving us in the direction of, of truly making America what uh, America spoke about uh, or put on paper um, from, from every generation. Um, in, in every race, it's, it's our responsibility uh, now. And so, yes, we, we not just the birthday, um, but that bullet reminds us that he made the sacrifice. What sacrifice am I willing to make? And as he would say, you know, if you haven't found something worth dying for, you're not fit to live. So it's time to make a decision what am I going to do for the next generation? You can be 15 and make that decision. Because if you're living and breathing on this earth, there, and as long as the earth does remain, there will be another generation behind you. And, and we all have a responsibility to make sure that what we pass on to them is worth passing on. All right. What I want to say about remembering April 4th is, I think April 4th, is important because it reminds us over and over again of the unfinished work. Because we have to remember he was cut short in the middle of some unfinished work as it relates to a lot of the economic issues. And if, if, if we look at today, uh, racism is very much st still an issue but the twin of that is even this, these economic inequities, inequities. And he talked about the two being tied together. But he was in the midst in, 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 um, in, in Memphis uh, of getting ready to uh, lead this poor people's campaign. Um, he was just leaving the whole Chicago area, you know, dealing uh, with the housing issue. Um, and even dealing with corporations on their social responsibility. And there's a lot of discussion about corporations now in terms of their social responsibility of being in certain communities and what are they going to give back. Uh, and so April 4th is about committing to the unfinished work. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right, let me ask you one more question. Do you, what do you think about when you look at that photo, that photo of you and your mother at the funeral? I think it was taken by either Flip Shulky or Manita mm -hmm. Sleep. Manita Sleep. Do you remember, you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. What do you think about that photo? I mean, I think it won a Pulitzer, right? It did. Yeah. Um, do you remember anything from that photo? Do I remember well, I guess being asleep? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember being asleep on the photo. Um, um, the strange thing is that photo is perhaps one of the most famous photos in the world. Um, and the irony of it for me, which is in a, in a good sense, it, it allows me to be able to live my life, but the irony is that's a famous photo in a lot of places, but a lot of people still don't know me. And so when I think about it, I think about, wow, you know, the world knew this image of me being on my, my mother's lap, but they don't really know Bernice. And so that's what comes to my mind quite, quite often.
A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs. Also to Senior Editor of Visuals, Sandra Brown. Senior Managing Editors, Monica Richardson and Mark Wallagore. And our Editor-in-Chief, Kevin Raleigh. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com backslash MLK50 for the AJC's coverage of honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to The Voices of King. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.